we are doing science in research, and science is all about to know, but not about to win. So, being that said, I want to say that the specific papers I really like is more about those papers who can give us insight. Welcome to a brand new episode of our podcast, Human and AI, Mind Machines in the Gradient Descent. Thanks that you tuned in again to listen and to learn. We are Oli and Avery, and we are your hosts for today. We're super, super excited to welcome the genius mind, Sudong Sun. Sudong is actually the very first talent that has spinned out of the newly established Siemens AI Lab residency program. Sudong's research contributes to the aspects of human and AI in various levels because he had investigated the relevancy of trustworthiness in industrial AI for the last nine months. So let's see how that journey went. So Sudong, ni hao man. And it's really great to connect to you. Um, how are you and where do we catch you today? Oh, hello, Aubrey. Hello, Uli. And hello, everyone. So it's an honor to be here. And Actually, that's quite a surprise that Abri can speak Chinese. And I must say, I have been doing quite well. And it has been really nice to stay in the AI lab to enjoy the journey of the residency. And today, the weather in Munich is also quite good. The sun is shining. And uh, yeah, it's uh, going to be a nice experience to be with two of you and then to share some stories about myself. Amazing. So that's just the perfect start into the podcast. So you have just finished the AI residency program in Munich, and we really, really enjoyed learning from you. But uh, maybe for the audience out there, can you maybe share some insights about who you actually are and what your journey looked like before you applied to the AI residency program? Oh, sure. I'm delighted to do that. So actually, I want to first introduce about my hometown, uh, which is called Qingdao. It also has a German version, or Qingtao, probably quite well known to a lot of German people. Is that the beer? Is that? Yeah, no. that's the beer. Uh, and, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I always <laughs> feel quite proud of it, because if you go to the Stadtmuseum in Munich, there is a corner actually just set up for the beer brand in my city. And actually, it has a deep historical connection with the Bavarian beers. And uh, some Bavarian merchants had built us on the first, very first beer brewery in Asia. And it has been always successful, even up to today, a very competitive brand. So I grew up there and I also did my university there. I had my bachelor studying physics in the local university there, also with a minor in electric engineering. And then uh, during my master, I moved to the southern part of China in the Chinese Academy of Sciences where I continue to do studies in electric engineering, but also with a minor in biology. And then in 2016, I joined my PhD group, uh, which is a group of uh, statistical software development. We are basically maintaining a lot of uh, softwares in machine learning, which are open sourced. And then we're trying to kind of bridge the two fields of statistic and machine learning. All right. 
Also, I know you're, you're into martial arts, aren't you, right? So, and I guess, uh, you know, especially in quarantines and in quarantine, obviously, currently right? I think there's, you know, a physical well-being and, and being a bit mindful about, you know, your own physical, you know, situation and, you know, setup, I guess, correlates with also having a healthy mind, which is also challenging, right? What do you say, right, being in, in, this, in the scene for a bit longer, right? What can applied research right? Learn from martial arts. Wow. Uh, that's actually a very brilliant question. And I would always enjoy answering this since I feel also not only from my hometown, but also I'm hardly proud of my hobby of martial art because it has taught me so much during my life. I kind of honor the idea of martial art, even to the extent of philosophy um, level. Being that sad, for example, what I could draw some connections between martial art and research is that the first point would be don't feel sorry. So imagine that we are doing some sparring, Uli, you and me, and now <laughs> I received a punch from you. I don't have time to feel sorry. I have to get ready and then try to kind of intervent or intercept your punches. And this is all about sparring that you try to get highly concentrated, but don't try to spend some time on feeling sorry or frustrated by yourself. I think this is also true for doing research because in doing research, we spend a lot of efforts, but sometimes there is no payoff just because either we went into the wrong direction, but still with more and more trials, we're increasing the chances of successful and uh, being frustrated or just feeling sorry about the failures wouldn't uh, bring us to success. I think this is uh, one point. The other point I would like to say is more about to always stay ready from martial art, it's more about the concept that we try to keep ourselves fit every day. We do the payload training. We try to keep up the training's plan and try to increase our physical well-being and also our extendability or capability to do things. These all can be connected to applied research or research that we always try to keep up the pace with the frontier. And then with the timing, we can carry out very important research to cut through very challenging questions. So this is the second lesson I would say I learned from martial art is that the timing is always important. Right. What an interesting way to look at it. Uh, so Sudang, uh, what was your motivation? What was the reason why you actually decided to apply for the AI residency program? And what really caught your attention? Okay, uh, I think um, that's kind of like a continuation to what I have done during my PhD. Because when I saw the advertisement for the job title, Trustworthy AI, that is really eyeball drawing from my side. Because during my PhD study, I have done two projects, both in medical research. One project is that, for example, if there are several hospitals, they want to kind of uh, co-conduct the medical research but with some constraint. For example, some hospitals, they don't want to share the data at all. Uh, but some hospitals, they might want to share the data in a way that, okay, you can send the model to them, and then they tell you how your model is. So in these circumstances, we face a very big challenge that is distribution shift. For example, if you have a patient from Germany or China, and because of different reasons, you will expect that those two cohorts of patients wouldn't behave the same. And that actually brings a lot of challenges to traditional machine learning. And that is one project I've done. The other one is that we kind of uh, used the variational inference to kind of uh, uh, invent a new way to resample the data, for example, the X-ray data to, to screen the mammography or 
the breast cancer. And what we found is that even using these simple resampling techniques, most state-of-the-art deep learning techniques actually failed in these kind of tasks. And that has actually draw a lot of attention on my side and also a lot of research interest. And when I saw this title, Trustworthy AI, I saw, wow, and how would be the story inside Simmons? That would be yeah, how I came into the residency program. Yeah, nice. And great that you joined. There we go. That was a well, pretty awesome ride, to be honest. Yeah, always delighted. But obviously, you know, uh, I, I, you know, we see the trustworthy eye, not because it was one of the topics, you know, exposed. It receives more and more attention, actually, also outside, right? From European levels on trustworthy eye with a different interpretation, I guess, but also from the research community, right? If you would somehow a bit of explain for the audience outside, which may be not too deep into tech or machine learning, maybe or some of them obviously are, but you know, what are the, somehow the key elements of trustworthiness in machine learning? Can you, is there, is there some kinds of structure you can give them along? What does trustworthiness in machine learning actually involve? Yeah, sure. I think the topic trustworthy AI actually incorporates a lot of multitude and uh, they can kind of uh, consist of two major points. One is the technical side, and the other one is somehow the social factor or so. From the technical side, which would be the main topic I have uh, tried to deal with uh, during my residency, and the number one I would say is robustness, which means that we know that, oh, we have neural network, it is so powerful to represent so many different complex relationships between the input and output. And over the years, we have also seen that it has so many successful stories in different applications found. But when, in terms of uh, industry application, we will ask ourselves the question, can we really trust the prediction? So if in some very extreme circumstances, is the prediction or the output of the neural network still trustworthy? So that would be how the robustness means. For example, in terms of uh, the autonomous driving, for the segmentation or either for the object detection. Once the car is on the road, now in a very gloomy weather, and then something in front appears. And now if the car really makes a wrong decision, this can be really life-threatening. And that is why we are really concentrating on studying the robustness of the neural networks. That would be one very important factor. And the other factor technically would be safety, I would say. For example, we all know that recently there have been a lot of techniques to adversarial attack the neural networks. And then that makes it possible to kind of uh, deliberately construct some attacking sequences to fool the AI system or even causes more advanced breaks into the system. And this is something we, of course, do not want. And this is another aspect of AI, more in terms of how can we take our system in a safe way. And then, of course, there is also this privacy concern because, for example, if there are some social networks, they are always promoting you some ads or trying to summarize what you have done historically. And sometimes you might not want that. And one very big factor is that we want to hold those kind of behaviors accountable, which means that the human should be in the center of the AI. That means they should decide themselves to what much extent do they want to enjoy the conveniency of the AI, but also kind of keep their private data at hold. So that would be uh, these different factors. And I think 
of course, there's always a trade-off, which means that you can keep your private data there, you can keep things accountable, but you also want to have a very convenient experience when you surf in the internet. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let me get this geeky joke, right? I don't know if, if that works out. So a, a Bayesian statistician, right, falls down from a building, right? On his way, you know, <laughs> he sees a friend from the frequentists watching him and from, from the window, from the third window, right? And the friend asks, you know, how are things, right? And the Bayesian answers, based on my priors, everything will be just fine, right? So <laughs> in, uh, even though right, I, I see, you know, we, we have this, I don't know, two different, you know, fields. On the one side, the semantics and the connectionist, let's say, or the machine learning data-driven aspects, right? Probability stuff, right? Which always have this kind of rant, which is the other. And it seems to be in current times, we have a, another little battle, right? Between the Bayesian stuff and the frequentists, right? Uh, in the terms of, you know, how they use probability, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. What is this rant all about? Is that a serious, you know, thing going on in the field? Or <laughs> what's, your, what's your take on there? Uh, really, you're definitely very good in making jokes and making things funny. I really loved uh, this parable you have made. And actually, this kind of joke or kind of uh, dilemma between the frequency statistician and Bayesian statistician has always been the popular or the most popular topic or joke among the statistical community. For me, I actually do not want to annoy any frequency statistician because I believe I'm a Bayesian statistician. But my view on this... <laughs> See that? <laughs> yeah, okay. I think I kind of revealed myself already. <laughs> so you certainly have some tricks, Uli. Really. <laughs> uh, but I think my attitude is always like, uh, we should try to incorporate more. We should try to tolerate more diversity in terms of whether in which scenario this kind of school helps you to understand things better. And in terms of the prior information, actually, if I fall off the window and my prior tells me, don't worry, but the problem is, of course, I do not have enough data to construct a better posterior. <laughs> but I would like to also address that even in my research, I've used this Bayesian way in that I think prior can actually help us to encode a lot of useful information. So if we go back to the very fundamental of machine learning about the learning theory, the learning theory, there's one very important conclusion is that if uh, a hypothesis class has infinite VC dimension, and then this class, a hypothesis, is not pack learnable. And that actually gives us a lot of guidance in driving us to kind of like constrain the number of uh, or the VC dimension of the hypothesis classes. And actually, prior is a very important way to help us to kind of inject those inductive bias or the prior knowledge about a specific system. For example, if we are expert about the physical system, we already know something might has a bigger probability to happen than other things. So I think this is a very convenient way. And I, of course, would like to use this chance to advertise a little bit by, about this Bayesian method. But of course, I also love frequency approaches. Really. All right. So, Dong, what aspects would you say have focused during your time in the residency program? And what kind of applications areas would you foresee for the future? Oh, good question. Actually, I think uh, that also has the connection with the last question I have answered. Uh, when we kind of try to tackle these problems, we specifically want to say that can we kind of uh, recover or kind of approximately recover how the data is generated 
for example, I mentioned about this autonomous driving. We know that sometimes the data we gather during the training can be different from the data we see at deployment time. And this is actually quite challenging because we cannot enumerate all the possible scenarios. And then we came up to the idea that, okay, maybe the data is actually coming in a hierarchical way, which means that, okay, there are some very, very deterministic factors that generate something, some latent representations for the data, and then those latent representations for the data actually further generate the data we have really seen in terms of camera image and so. And then the, the idea is, can we kind of recover this process? If we can recover these processes, maybe it is possible to kind of uh, have a separation between the concept, the thing we are trying to do with the AI system and also the domain, which means that, okay, in different circumstances, the AI system might behave differently. But if we can uncover these two things, we can separate them. One benefit we can get is that we can make the system quite interpretable or transparent to kind of to say, hey, in these cases, the system made such an error and because it kind of uh, misunderstood what should be the domain and what should be the concept, for example. And this is one important concept we kind of uh, always have in mind during the residency program. And the other things, of course, in terms of how to apply these AI systems, we specifically target in some properties of AI learning algorithm. For example, we really favor semi-supervised learning, which means that the majority of the data might not be able to be labeled manually due to the large expenses. And also, sometimes we are not really sure if a specific label, either it is a class label or a domain label, can really provide us with very, very clear information in order not to mislead the system. And these are all into our consideration to kind of like implicitly give some hints to the AI system, how should they be supervised? And these about uh, the aspects of the things that we kind of focus during the residency program. And I will feel sorry if it's a little bit technical. And in terms of application areas, of course, I think the first thing would be autonomous driving because we always want to have a trustworthy autonomous driving systems. And also in our production line, for example, in different factories, we would like to really have a reliable prediction in order to maximally save the manpower or other cost and so. And also in terms of robotics, for example, if we want to really use AI systems to replace some aspects of the traditional control method or the root finding method or anything, we really need to have a very reliable predictor. Industrial AI is all about robustness, right? And explainability because, you know, we do change the real world and it has an impact on the real world when maneuvering a you know, robotic system. You know, and that's why I guess putting machine learning in operations has a different constraints as, as the human task level as we, you know, in translation as we have, right? So if you look to the outside world, right, obviously, you know, because you're, you know, one foot or maybe one and a half foot's actually still in the, you know, academia world as well, right, as, as, as well as now, you know, also in the industrial research community, right? 
it's amazing, you know, what has been contributed over the last years and the progress been made in a lot of, you know, bits and pieces on geeky level, but also on application level. If you look on the last, I don't know, you know, the, the last months or a year or years, a bit more, right? What would you say, you know, what's your favorite paper or achievement or application where you say like, oh, that that has, you know, this this had a significant axel, you know, axel on, on the field, right? It's, that made a bit more than an individual, you know, make progress. Is there any contribution you see like, oh, pretty cool? Oh, actually, I do have something in mind, but I wouldn't tell you. So, Uli, I guess you're playing the trick <laughs> on me again. Uh, but uh, I think I can tell you what kind of papers I really like. And also, I would like to kind of raise some concerns from my side about the current research community. I think AI has definitely been a buzzword in every aspect of our life, especially, of course, in the research community. But what I say that nowadays, AI has also been kind of like a race. People are continuing to publish things benchmarking on the same thing and then to trying to say, hey, my algorithm is better, his algorithm sucks. And so, of course, from one side, this kind of like has brought a very good competition to kind of advance our system, also our frontier to, to a further extent. This will help the growth of the AI community, of course. But from the other side, I would also like to mention that actually we're doing science in research. And science is all about to know, but not about to win. So being that said, I want to say that the specific papers I really like is more about those papers who can give us insight and who can give us some explanations on why in this scenario this algorithm works and why on that scenario the other algorithm works better. This kind of research, I think, is particularly helpful. For example, in terms of the basic uh, learning theory I mentioned, that the infinite VC dimension hypothesis class can never be pack-learnable. I think this kind of research is really fundamental. It tells us that whether something can be done or not. I think this is particularly interesting. For example, if someone wants to invent a machine that can move forever, and the law of the physics can already tell us that this is impossible, I think this kind of uh, breakthrough research are very, very fundamental and we should always value them because they give the philosophy what works and what does not work and to what extent they can work, for example. And then the other side is also about this insight. For example, some papers, they really have very theoretical insight about some phenomena and then they say, hey, this algorithm can be, is a reduction of my algorithm under these circumstances. And then when this hyperparameter changes, it reduces to the other algorithm and so, and then they have a benchmark trying to say, hey, this is the general picture. It helps you to gain the knowledge, but not to really say, hey, I have changed this part of the algorithm and then this works and I win. So that uh, would be my viewpoint on that. And specifically, since I'm kind of expertise in variational inference, I think recent years, the growth in the field of amortized variational inference is really important because it kind of make deep learning with variational inference possible. That would be my viewpoint. But I think in general, there's a lot of good papers I cannot really enumerate, of course. <laughs> A uh, pretty nice, nice answer, to be honest, right? Uh, great. If you look on the conferences, right, and this this geek out, it's really tough, right, getting papers. I guess if you're on the PhD track, right, getting really tough getting papers accepted. Not because you know the contribution is not significant or maybe not significant, but just the sheer of mass, right? 
what has been is been exposed to the large scale conferences, which also assessed, right? And then you see the, the this enormous trend of you know um, a lot of you know spin off of publications coming from yes centric companies, actually, right? Not only uh, academia. But also a large scale, right, from the you know corporate research, let's say, right, of there. And then you see also uprising, right, and not only uprising already. You know, I think overtaking also in stats count from Asia, right, also from you know China, right. Um, uh, enormous momentum in specialist writing. What makes that? What, what do you, what's your thought? And you know, there was two years ago a bit of discussion, right, you know, because these these enormous you know digital giant companies can um, afford this amount of compute and have the access to the data so you know it's it's uh, they're playing in a different field of competition vice versa to the, to the academic researcher because they don't have you know access to compute and these number of dates what do you see of you know europe us and china maybe or asia right uh, aspects what makes you know each of the virtual pillars so so special can you elaborate a bit yeah, sure. I do have some thoughts on that since I do come from the Oriental world and now I'm living in Germany. Uh, I think one aspect is definitely very beneficial to the whole society would be that we definitely enjoy diversity in the terms of AI research. For example, people from different regions or just from different history background, they might focus different aspects on the AI system. For example, in China, I know Many of my friends and study colleagues have been working for those big tech companies. They are really doing big data because you know how many people China have. And then you know what is the big data for the internet industry. And then they certainly have kind of the challenge for their own market. And then some aspects of the technology can be incubated there. So being that said, I want to say that I think market is always a very big driving factor for innovation, for technological innovations. And from the other side, I want to say that uh, this kind of diversity can kind of uh, help us to make the system, the research system more efficient because different people focus on different things and then we kind of exchange our ideas in the conference. So we learn from each other. These kind of like a phenomenon, like a cooperative competition. And in terms of Europe, I think, for example, for my past research residency program, we specifically target in industrial AI. I think this is something that... Uh, a country like Germany specifically are strong at because there is such a long history of industry of different automobile companies and so and combining AI with those hardwares and robotics and so are specifically something that would uh, definitely lead the world. Yeah. Wow, that's very interesting to hear. So Dan, I also have another question because you were like our very first resident who made it through the residency. So in your eyes, what makes the residency program at the Siemens AI Lab so special? Yeah, um, I think that's really an honor for me. First of all, I think I also feel quite grateful that I got the chance to really uh, get into the program and to know all the nice colleagues and all the nice colleagues like you, Aubrey, and also the great leaders like Uli. And to, to experience the culture, I think this would be the first point I really feel grateful about the great uh, culture in the company in Siemens to say how people are integrated here and how nice people are with each other and then about how people view the th same thing from different perspectives and so. And also, I can also say that uh, this program has been made available that the company has seen that there is a necessity to combine with academic forces 
to really tackle some cutting edge problems, specifically about the robustness of neural networks and so. So I think definitely this would be a very memorable experience from my lifetime. Mm, that's very beautifully put, I would say. And this is already the last question, Sudang, because you're already almost about to finish your PhD pretty soon. So do you have any tips or recommendations to young students out there that are maybe considering right now to start a PhD? So they are at the very beginning and maybe see the pile of work or what, what would you tell them? Oh, that's a good question. Thanks. Um, I think from my side, I would uh, recommend that before you want to start a PhD, you should make sure that you're really into it. Do you have enough interest in doing research? Because you will certainly meet a lot of difficulties during the PhD time. And at that moment, the interest is the biggest driving force. Of course, you, have, you should have a lot of other characteristics, but those are mostly something that we should all share, no matter what you do. You, either you go to a company or go to somewhere, or you want to develop a career. So I want to focus that interest is really important, and you should have the ambition to kind of... Uh, want to get determined to solve a specific problem of the area. And also, I think you should always be prepared for the frustration because sometimes you might be not so lucky to get everything done at one time. And there will always be time that you feel like, hey, I'm good enough, or you question yourself. And these moments are the exactly good chance for you to train your endurance. And also, I think a team is very important because they might not directly help you, but you can always learn from them the way they think and the way they kind of conduct research, the way how they view the same thing from another perspective and how would they conduct uh, some specific experiment. So you, you can learn a lot of from their characteristics and so, and also the PhD supervisor, he will teach you a lot of things. Um, I think uh, it's definitely a very exciting thing to do which means that if you still feel young, I think definitely it's a good chance to kind of like get a position and then try to tackle into a very challenging topic within three to four years and so. Thanks so much for sharing, Sudan. And thanks so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure, like always, to talk to you. And we could also talk to you for way, way longer. But we are already at the end of the session. But be before we call it a day, uh, let's play Authentic Autocomplete, our closing game. So <laughs> I will give you a couple of sentence starters and you will just finish. Siemens is... Siemens is a leading corporate in industrial AI. Amazing. You should join the residency program because... That's a very good chance to combine your expertise with some real-life experiences, especially the challenging problems in industry. Beautiful. Applied research corporates need because... Because it is a very efficient way to stay competitive in terms of technological advances and to make innovations and to save costs. Amazing. Corona has taught me... Ah, so it's not a bad idea to store some food at home and maybe also some toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> That's important. My personal superpower is... Ah, for my side, I think uh, it can be summarized to be tenacity. I, I think I really have a good endurance. I'm determined to achieve things. And I'm also a very thoughtful person. I have a lot of creativity. 
And sometimes I'm also sympathetic. That's it. Yes, I I can fully echo that. Sidang, CC, is that right? Thanks so much, <laughs> Sidang, for you know being that sharp, being that crisp, being being you know very you know you always bring something down to an essence. When I talk to you, we really enjoyed uh, the conversation already here, and I'm I'm sure we have a couple more conversations going on. And you know, so, so thankful that allowed to learn with you uh, on the on this journey, and I hope you you know you will further inspire us throughout you know the next journeys as well. So really appreciate and thanks very much for your time here. Yeah, and folks you, out there, stay obviously tuned. Right, we uh, there's a lot more to come. Stay bold, committed, and open-minded, and we hear it at the next Siemens AI podcast. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.